Anyway, um, a couple of housekeeping things real quick before we get started. If you did not, hi Jennifer, how are you? Um, if if you did not pay for your book last week, or your name and information are not on here, this will pass around the room. Would you please be sure that it's on there, es especially um, a contact phone number, email for you. We are still in snow season. If we needed to cancel last minute, I need to be able to get a hold of you to let you um, know that, what conditions we have with that. So that's going around. Last week, Jim mentioned this book, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth by Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart. This is my copy. I am happy to loan it to somebody. This is a good resource to have in your library. And I do know several of you mentioned that you would like to have a copy. And Jim said we could get Jill to do an order. I looked on Amazon. They're $11.98 on Amazon, which is an even $12. If you want to go on Amazon yourself and get a used copy, you can get them for less. Uh, they're available for like two or three. But if you want a new copy, that's what they are. What I'm going to do is I'm going to pass this around. If you want a copy, put your John Henry here. Here's the book. You can thumb through it. And we'll give it to Jill, and we'll get an order in. And I'm guessing the church has Prime, Amazon Prime. And it would be here by next, if they don't, I do. Uh, then we can get them, you know, within 48 hours easily. Okay? All right. Um, Steve, am I, do you have the mic on? Okay. All right. Steve has the mic on, so everybody should be able to hear. You can hear. I'm amplified. That's scary. <laughs> ah, an amplified Nancy. Okay. This is a little overwhelming to me. I am excited. I am always excited to see people hungry for God's word and to want to know it. And I do think God is moving in his kingdom. A friend of mine that teaches at another church here in town, a very small church, um, and she's used to little bitty groups like doesn't want them more than 10, has 18 people committed to her class this semester, and she's feeling overwhelmed because they meet in a home. They don't have their building yet. And she's like, jeepers, there's 18. And I said, wow, there's 50-some in mine. I said, people are, they're just hungry. They want to know God's word. So anyway, with that said, what I want to do, we've got a lot to cover this morning, and we want to be respectful of our time. And so let's, let's open with a word of prayer, shall we? Father God, oh man, we, just, we praise you and we thank you that you are our God, that you are our Lord, and that your Son is our Savior. You have poured out your blessings and your mercy and your faithfulness on us in a way that we, we cannot even begin to put our heads around and imagine. It is truly a gift the way you stay so faithful to us, even when we are faithless. Father, your word is full of treasures. It is full of life, life-giving words for us. And how I pray that as we dig in, that you, you would open that treasure for us. That as, as we seek your wisdom, as we seek to know you more intimately, that you would just meet us in the pages of your word, even in the details of history, Father, you are revealing yourself. And I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, that revelation will just pop off the page and we will see it and we will be warmed by it 
and that our lives would be changed and transformed by it. We commit our time to you, Father, now, that your Holy Spirit would just descend upon this place and that he would speak through me and through Jim and through every person that seeks to share in class today. Father, we commit our time to you now. In your son's most precious name, amen. Okay, if you want to pull your homework out, we're going to get started. This is, uh, you notice we really didn't get into Judges this week, but we really are getting into Judges this week because we needed to do a lot of historical background to bring us up to this point. Do you remember last week how Jim read the first verse of Judges 1? After the death of Joshua. After the death of Joshua, the Israelites inquired of the Lord, who shall go up against the Canaanites? And right there we should be asking, well, who's Joshua? And and what's significant about that Joshua died? Why are they fighting the Canaanites? Why are they inquiring of the Lord of these things? This is what we mean by approach the text as if you don't know anything, as if you've never read it before. You begin asking those questions and don't assume that you always know the answers. Really seek to ask the who, what, where, why, when, how types of questions and figure out what what God is trying to communicate. So after the death of Joshua, and we want to know who is Joshua, why is this significant, And we're taking you all the way back to Genesis. Your very first question was taking you back to Genesis 12. Who are the characters in Genesis 12, 1 through 3? Who do we we encounter? Abram. Abram and who? Okay, so God, he speaks to Abram. Not Abraham yet, he is Abram. And he tells Abram, what does he tell him? I want you to go. I want you to go where? To a land I'm going to show you. So Abram doesn't even yet know where he's going. But he knows he's going. And God makes him some promises. What promises does he make? Because you see, what we're going to see this week is a lot of, I will. I will do these things. What does he say? I will make you into a great nation. What else? Okay, I'm going to bless you. And in blessing you, I will make your name great. Is Abraham's name great? Very few people don't know who Abraham is. Abraham is great. He is a key figure in, in our faith, in Christianity. He is obviously a key figure in the Jewish faith. He is even a key figure in the Islamic faith. So his name has been made great. What else does he tell him? Okay. Okay. In you, what are the exact words? In you, all the families, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, we know the rest of the story, even here. And how is it that in you, all the families of the world will be blessed? Because of what, Diane? Jesus will come. Through him, Jesus is going to come. 
So Abram at this point, he hears these things. And he has enough knowledge of who God is that he responds and he goes. And time passes. Remember, Abram and Sarah don't have children. They are, and they are old. They are in their 90s and they are childless. So in Genesis 15, having heard these promises from God and some time lapsing by, what happens in Genesis 15? This is a key text, you all. When Jim was talking about knowing and understanding some of the key um, sweeping historical events of Israel and people, do you remember when he did that last week? I loved how he started throwing out names of Canadian prime ministers and none of us knew who they were. I knew who Trudeau was. But I, I, I recognized that name. But then when he started throwing out American presidents' names, Washington, Jefferson, Lincoln, Reagan, Clinton, suddenly we know, you hear those names and you go, United States presidents, history of the presidents. Here are the leaders of this country that have served and made this country what it is or whatever your political affiliation, what it isn't. So uh, you could add that in there as well. And then he started naming people in the Bible. Adam, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Solomon, David, Elijah, Caleb, all of these people. Who are these people? You remember how I shared with you last year, last week, my history. Some of my people, Giuseppe Scatura, Luis May. Louisa Mayhi, Lorita Scatori. These, these are, these are if, I, if you start naming those names, I know who those people are. And I know where they lived because they're my heritage. This is our spiritual heritage. So we need, we need to understand these events. And if we don't understand what we're laying the groundwork for today, we don't really understand what is happening in Judges. And we don't fully get who God is in Judges. And that's, he's the main character. I put that in your lesson. He is the main character. Not Samson, not Jephthah, not Deborah, none of those people. It is God who is the main character in what he is doing. So Abraham, Abraham now still has no children. What does he do in chapter 15? This is a key, huge event you should be familiar with. If somebody says Genesis 15, you should be able to spat off in a few in two words what happens there. The Abrahamic covenant, right, happens there. Because what does Abram do? He has an encounter with God. And he questions God. What does he question God? I don't have an heir. I don't have one, so, you know, custom would be that one of my servants in my house that I would appoint could be my heir. So Eliezer would be my heir. And God says, no, no, because your heir will come forth from your own body. And Abram says, how will I know this? When God says, your descendants will be as the sand, your descendants will be as the stars. And he says, how do I know this? What does God tell him to do? Go get some animals. Cut them in half. Lay them side by side. Why is he telling them to do, them to do that? They're going to cut covenant. That was a very strange thing to us. Our first reaction would be, why on earth would God have him do that? 
not to mention how cruel that would be to those poor animals to cut them in half and lay them there. Let's not tell PETA what's happening here. So, but in that, in that day, in that culture, and in that time, we know exactly what was happening. God is cutting covenant, and God is the one the smoke, flaming torch in the smoking pot that walks between the pieces. Where's Abram when he does this? He's asleep. He is asleep. God is the one walking between the pieces. And in doing that, he's symbolizing this. I am, I am, I am staking my life on this, Abram. I am promising you these things. And if this does not come true, if I don't hold true to my word, May what happened to these animals happen to me. That is how serious this process is. And what does he tell him here? In the, in the cutting of the covenant, what things does God tell Abram? He tells him exactly where the land is, but he says, I'm going to give you this land, right? What'd you say, Lynn? It says, I have given in the ESV. Okay, I think ESV says, um, I will give this land. And to your offspring, to your offspring, that's important, I will give this land. Abram never gets the land. He lives in the land, and he lives as a nomad moving about the land, and his life events occur in the land, but he doesn't have possession of the land. The only possession of any of the land that he has is some land he buys when Sarah dies to bury her. But he doesn't have, but that's, this is key. This is very key. Pay attention to this. I give you this land. Now, moving into Genesis 26 and into Genesis 35, what characters? This is your next question in your homework. God is here again. God is talking in Genesis 26 to whom? To Isaac. Who's Isaac? He's Abraham's son, the promised son, the son of the covenant. He is the one whom God will establish the covenant, not Ishmael, Isaac. Isaac is the miracle son that happened in their very old age, the one that God gave them, their blessed, loved son, Isaac. What does he tell Isaac? Those are more lessons. Okay, okay, did y'all hear that? There's some lessons in the back of the room if you don't have one for next week. He told him the same thing he told Abraham, didn't he? And what is that? It's important. I will make you a great nation. Doesn't he? Well, first he says, listen, he says, he says live in this land. I will be with you. I will bless you, and for to you and your offspring, I will give all these lands, I will give this land, 
And I will establish the oath I swore to Abram, your father. And I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and give these lands. And your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So to Isaac, everything that was promised to Abram is reiterated and sworn to him. The covenant is passed down to him. Who shows up next in Genesis 35? Who's Jacob? Is Isaac's son. And what if God has an encounter with Jacob? And what happens in that encounter? What does he tell him? Changes his name first, doesn't he? He says, no longer will you be Jacob, but you will be called Israel. Abraham, Abram later was changed to Abraham. Changed his name. There is significance in the name change. And what does he say? To, to Jacob, to now Israel. Yes, each time, each time. <laughs> Did you hear her? To your pappy and your grandpappy. Yes. He reiterates exactly what he has said to Isaac and what he has said to Abram. I, I'm going to make a great nation. I'm going to bless you. In you, all the families of the earth, I will give you this land. This is what I'm doing. I swore this to Abraham. I swore this to Isaac. And now it's being passed down to Jacob, not Esau, Jacob, because Jacob is the one to whom God will establish his covenant promises. And I like what Lynn said, because you will see that throughout Scripture. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You even see the Jews saying that in the New Testament. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's very important. This Abrahamic covenant being passed down and the fulfillment of the promises happening throughout each generation. Yes, Anetta. Okay, and why, why is that important? Kings shall come forth from you. It is the foretelling of Jesus, our King of Kings. A direct descendant will be David, right? David, the great king, the one that the Jews revere, and then from the lineage of David, the tribe of Judah, will come Jesus, the king. And see how this, this all connects. And the king, the king that comes forth, it's through him that all the families of the earth will be blessed. The king who will perpetually sit on the throne and rule and reign in all righteousness, King Jesus. And we've got that down front. It's on our bulletin every week, King Jesus. We're looking at, as we unfold Matthew on Sunday mornings. So, again, further reiteration of what God is doing. Yes, ma'am. We have a covenant responsibility. Yeah, we've talked a lot about that when um, we were in covenant. But now that we're, we, we enter into covenant by faith, by faith in Jesus Christ, but now that we're in it, we do have covenant responsibilities that are, are asked of us. That's a good point. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, we didn't look at any further scriptures in, in Genesis, but those of you all steeped in the scriptures, who would be the next main character that comes up? Joseph. Joseph. Joseph gets sold into slavery by his brothers, by his jealous brothers. He gets thrown into prison because of Potiphar's wife trying to make an advance at him and lying about him. But because he is an interpreter of dreams, he is recognized in prison, and he gets an audience before Pharaoh. And we know the rest of the story in that. I mean, he becomes Pharaoh's right-hand man. And at a time, a critical point in history, because the great famine is coming. They're going to have seven years of famine. And he knows this. God has revealed this to him. And so he uh, is in charge of bringing everything into the storehouses and building it up there for the time of the famine, and then equitably distributing that the, the grain during the time of the famine. Who shows up during this famine? His brothers. Yes, his brothers show up. It's a beautiful story of what he does with them, a beautiful story of how he reveals himself, and they are scared because he can take them out, and yet he says what you meant for evil, God meant for good, because he needed to preserve. What has God promised? He's promised a nation. He's promised a land. And I think Joseph knows this. He has some understanding that God is, that's what you meant it for evil. God meant it for good because you know what? It was evil what you did. But it look at the result has come. We're going to all be saved. You guys are going to come live with me in Egypt where there's food. And when they leave Egypt, and it tells you this in the very first verse in Exodus 1, one of the scripture passages you were supposed to go to, when they are found leaving Egypt, how many of them are there? Seventy. Is that a nation? No, it's a family. It's a clan. There's 70 of them. Maybe there were a few more if we counted women and children, but there's not very many. It's not a nation by, by any means. But they go into Egypt. What happens? Hmm? They multiply. They multiply. So they go into Egypt. 70 people, but throughout time, they multiply greatly. And what happens? Because they are breeding like rabbits. And who gets scared? Joseph dies. Hmm? Yeah, Joseph dies. New pharaohs arise. They don't really know this history. All he does is look out and sees, oh, my goodness, look at all these Israelites over here. They're going to overtake us. What's his solution to that problem? I'm going to treat them like slaves until they eventually do become slaves. I'm going to work them to death. He even at one point, which we didn't read that, but you know the story because it's where we get Moses, he tells the midwives to kill all the boys. But yet Moses' mother saves him. God's hand, God's sovereign hand, again, working. So you, you see this, this happening. Now, time passes. They are, in, they are in terrible bondage, terrible distress. And in Exodus 2, 23 through 25, not 1, 23 through 25, thank you all for those that contacted me and said there is no 1. <laughs> are you sure? I should have said, are you sure it's in my Bible? Made you go look for it. Okay. What, what do we find out? 
Hmm? God hears their cry. So here they are. They are in horrible bondage. They have multiplied greatly, enslaved, and in distress, and they cry out. And God hears. God not only hears, but God does what else? He remembers. Did he forget it? So what does it mean he remembers? He honors it. He didn't forget it. He just remember. It's a remember. It's a call. It's oh, it's not even a call in the mind. He is honoring it, and he's looking down. He's hearing the distressful cries of his people, but he's also looking down and saying, "Now is the time." Remember what he said to Abraham in Genesis 15. He says, "For 400 years, for 430 years, your people will be oppressed, and then I will bring you out with a great and mighty hand." So the the clock has ticked. And he remembers, and he remembers what he said, and the time is right, and it's time to bring them out. And then when you go into Exodus 6, 1 through 8, your number 4, what do you see? Moses has been raised up now. Moses is now a great leader, and what does God tell Moses that he's going to do? In and out of room. What does he tell Moses there? Hmm? Okay. Notice the I wills. I will deliver you out. What else? Okay, I'm going to redeem you with an outstretched arm. What else? Okay, I'm going to bring you into the land. See that land again? Okay, somebody say something else. Okay, you will be my people. What? Oh, no, wait a minute, no, no. They would have had an oral history of some sort. Um, the law had not been given yet. A stone. That's later. That's later. That's later. This is in, see, this is where you need to get your events right. The law has not been given yet. They're not even out of Egypt yet. The law is given after they get out of Egypt. After they're delivered, and it's in this here, it says, with outstretched arm and mighty acts of judgment, I will deliver you. And, of course, we know the ten plagues. It is with great mighty acts of judgment upon Egypt. And the ultimate judgment of killing all the firstborn, the night of the Passover. Remember, Passover is a huge, that, there's an Old Testament biblical event you need to know. And they come out 
they cross the Red Sea, and it is, there, it is then that the law is given to them. So they don't have it yet. Would they have an oral history of some sort? Yes. I think they would. Would you remember when Jim, those of y'all that were in, have been in here in the last couple of years, when Jim has put on the board kind of a timeline and, and the number of years, Jim, you might help me here because I may get it wrong, uh, between like Adam and Abraham, Abraham and the giving of the law, there's a huge span of time. There isn't anything written. It's all oral. God hasn't really done a lot with them. Do you remember the amount of time? A couple thousand years? Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Phyllis. That's Yahweh, Lord. Remember Jim doing that last week? L-O-R-D, all caps, is Yahweh. Lord, L-O-R-D, smaller letters, is Adonai. God, G-O-D, is Elohim. These are different Hebrew names, but Yahweh is his proper name. I am that. I, you know, when he reveals himself to, to Moses, and Moses says, who shall I say sent me? I am that I am. Yahweh. That is, that is who sent you. So, um, yeah, he didn't appear to them as the Lord. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of different names of God. They really are. You can do a whole study on the names of God. I've done that before. It's really interesting. Okay, so he, also, he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring you into this land, but he also makes a very important statement about the land he says I will give it to you as a what did he say possession I'm not only bringing you there I'm not only taking you in but I I I am setting it up that you will live there you will possess this land it will be your land where you will be a nation and not only a nation, a holy priesthood, a people of God's own possession, a light to all the nations. So that is his plan. See, pay attention. All these things he's saying, land, a nation, 
my covenant promises. This is what I'm going to do with you because kings are going to come forth through you. Not only kings that will rule and reign over you and over this nation, but King David, who I will make a covenant with, those of y'all that did covenant, a Davidic covenant, and a promise to him that one of his descendants will always be king, will always sit on the throne, and that is, that is Jesus. So all of these things threaded together are God's covenant promises. They are part of God's redemptive history of what he is doing throughout the story of Scripture and in our lives as well. I loved what Jim said last week when he made a comment about if you don't know this history and you don't know what God has been doing, you're going to struggle with what God is doing in your own life because you're missing a bigger picture to hold on to. And to realize, and those, I see some nodding heads, and I know you all know what I'm talking about. When things around you seem to be caving in and they don't make sense, what's happening in your life and in the people that you love, when you know there's a bigger story and something greater going on, and you know this history and you see God's not letting his people go. He has something he's allowing to happen or, or, or working out. Now, you can just trust it. I may not have the whole picture but I can trust that there is a whole picture, and I've got a place in it, so I'm secure, I'm okay. Does that make sense? Okay. Okay, so moving on. They come out, great work of God's redemption, but they come out by his, his mighty outstretched arm and great acts of judgment, and they, um, unfortunately, through a lack of faith, on the part of the Israelites, end up in the wilderness for 40 years, wandering, and a whole generation has to die before God's going to say, okay, now we'll take you into the land. That generation has died. Moses is getting old. Moses is not allowed to go into the land. But before he goes in Deuteronomy, he reiterates the law and the covenants and gets, he's getting them ready. He's getting them ready pass the baton on to Joshua, who will lead them in, and to get them ready for this whole process. And I've given you a couple of scriptures there as Moses is speaking to them and telling them, when God brings you into the land, what does he say? First of all, what's God going to do? He's going to bring him into the land, but what else? What are some other descriptives? He's going to drive them out before you. Notice those words, how important they are. I'm going to drive them out before you. I'm going to give them over to you and when you will defeat them. These are nations greater and mightier than they are. But I'm going to drive them out before you and you will defeat them. But he gives them, I mean, you know, you've got a note there. The victory is assured. And why is it assured? Who's behind the victory? God is. God is. God and the sovereign Lord is behind the victory. But then he gives them some instructions, some do's and some don'ts. And what does he tell them? This is important. Fully destroy all the idols. Not partially, fully. What else? In the people too. Destroy the people. We'll talk about that in a minute. 
What else? What, Teresa? Anything that breathes. Destroy anything that breathes. Yeah. Don't keep any of their stuff. What else? Don't marry them. Don't, don't marry, why don't, why, hang on to that, Linda. Don't, why not marry them? They serve other gods. So if you let your sons and your daughters marry them and they serve other gods, what's going to happen to the sons and daughters? They're going to worship those other gods. They're going to lead them into worshiping those other gods. And they're supposed to be worshiping me, Yahweh, the, the um, one true living God. Okay. What else? What'd you say, Linda? Just a second. Even cut the fruit trees? Don't. Oh, it said that? I didn't write that down. Okay, don't cut the fruit trees down. I did not notice that. Okay. Destroy their altars, burn them. Okay, no treaties. No treaties, no what else? Covenants. Don't make any covenants with them because covenants are binding. And you have to, you make a covenant with someone, you've got to honor it. So don't, don't make a covenant with these people. Don't make any treaties with them. Show them no mercy whatsoever. In fact, show them no mercy to the extent that you completely annihilate everything that breathes. Okay? Anything else you all want to add to that? If they don't, what happens? Say that again. Yes. Yeah. But if they if they do these things, it says the anger of the Lord will be kindled against them, against Israel. So don't do these things because he says, notice this, for you are a people holy to the Lord. God chose them as a treasured possession and not because they were more in number. Not, and I, you know, I think between the lines, not because you're lovely, not because there's anything sweet and beautiful about you. I just chose you. You are my chosen people, and I love you, and I'm going to keep the oath I swore to my fathers. But he makes it very clear, not only here, but in other passages, you do these things, and there will be consequences if you do these things. Okay? Moses dies. The baton of leadership is passed on to Joshua. Joshua is a great military leader, and he, he is poised to lead them in to, into battle for the conquest of the land. So in Joshua 1, we have an encounter between God and Joshua. And what does God tell Joshua? Be strong and courageous. Did you know how many times he said that? Three times. Be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. I think maybe he was a little bit scared. He might have been a little, had a little bit of trepidation about the position that he was put into. But what, what does he tell him? Why can he be strong and courageous? Is this is God who's dealing with him, but he gives him some words of assurances besides be strong and courageous. Nobody will be able to defeat you. That's very encouraging. 
The Lord, your God, will be with you wherever you go. I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. Do all that Moses has commanded you. You keep the law and you do everything that Moses is commanding you, then you will have success. These people will be defeated before you. Again, again, we have some um, commandments, some instructions, admonitions that God gives the people in 23 and in 24. What were they? Did you see it? Keep and do all that is written. Don't mix with these nations. We've, we've heard that before, didn't we? Don't mix with them. Don't serve their gods. Be careful to love the Lord your God. Fear him. Serve him. Put away any of these gods you might have had back in Egypt. And any of these gods you might find in this land I'm taking you into. Choose this day. I love that. We're all familiar with that. Choose this day whom you will serve. And as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So under Joshua's leadership, they're going to go in. And they're going to battle these people, battle by battle by battle, to push them away, to take the land. And in Judges, they're beginning. They've won these battles. But now there's, there's still some remaining peoples. That's where we've come up to. After the death of Joshua. Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up? Because there's still chunks of places where there are pockets of Canaanites and Edites, all other kind of ites, who are still living in the land. And they have taken the land, but now they need to possess the land that God had said it will be your possession. So that brings us up to Judges, where we're going to see this period of Judges which if you've already kind of dug into Judges, you know. What, what, how would you characterize the period of the Judges? What, what did you say, Phyllis? Trepidous? What did you say, Bill? You didn't? You're thinking? It was a time of turmoil. Time of turmoil? It's a process. It is a process. Mm-hmm. 
they weren't supposed to do. Yes, they did. Yes, they did. And that, I'm not pre... Go, June, what'd you say? Well, may, maybe, maybe. Hold that thought, okay? Hold that thought. Um, were you going to say something, Lynn? Okay, thank you for that practicality, Lynn. <laughs> Yes. Um, it, I don't think you're taking it out of context, but it could also be interpreted that no, you can't on your own strength. Only God, only by God's enablement, can you remain faithful to Him. And we all know that that's really true. We cannot, of our own effort, remain true to Him. It's got to be through the power of the Holy Spirit working and Him holding on to us. Amen. Yeah, because I'm 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 a willful doer of keeping His His word. So, uh, yes, ma'am, Phyllis. He did. Yes, he did. Uh-huh. Meditate on this day and night. There's so much in these verses we're not even hitting upon. We're just getting the main, the main points to bring us up to the history where we are. Um, the thing I want you to see, well, to know, one, and I think all you know the rest of the story, Israel's going to fail miserably in Judges. And it looks like, it will look at points as if they're going to disintegrate as a people and as a nation. Uh, they they do not possess the land. I'm 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 doing some of your homework for you next week, but I think that's fine. Um, and, and they they do go worship other gods. They do intermarry. They do make covenants. They do everything that God has told them not to do. This is a dark period in the history. But you know what it is? It is a bright period in seeing who God is and remaining faithful to His covenants and preserving His people. I mean, this is what I meant by last week in the Old Testament is where you really get to know who God is in a powerful way as you see him working out his redemptive history and purposes with these people. Because what I want you to see here is all these promises, the kings, the nation, the land, the land, the land, the nation, the nation. He will, he will preserve, he will take them out of the land eventually. Those of you all that know, did prophets, you remember, okay, 
day came, repercussions, the curse was brought upon them, and he brought in Assyria and Babylon and took them out of the land. But they are never forsaken as his people. They are never forsaken, and boy, that king is going to come forth from that nation, from the tribe of Judah. Now, in our remaining couple of minutes, um, we have question seven here that I put in here that would have been easy to have left out and just not deal with, but it's a pressing question, and it's one that comes up a lot. If you remember, I read you that quote by Richard Dawkins last week of his description of God. He's an atheist and his description of God. And there's, you know, that's a fairly recent book. So if you get in discussions with unbelievers, this is one thing they like to bring up, is how could a God, why would you want to believe in a God that would come in and just annihilate everything that breathes? Women, children, the babies, the little toddlers. How, how, how do we deal with this? This is a struggle for particularly unbelievers. It is a struggle for a lot of Christians. How could God ask that of them? How could a holy, righteous, merciful, loving God condemn innocent people to die? How could God ask him to not just drive them out, kill them? Okay. Okay, did y'all hear Teresa? They weren't innocent. They were sinners. There are scriptures I didn't give them to where you can read what, what they were guilty of doing. You can go back and read in history what they were guilty of doing. It was a very wicked time. Yes, ma'am, Nicole. Good example. The, yes. Yes. Good. Yes. Absolutely. They weren't wicked enough. That's why they were given 400 years. I mean, here, here is God. And what I remember seeing this in, in clarity and some of a, a couple, two or three of y'all that had been studying like this for a long time. Do you remember, Claire, back when we did Joshua and Judges 10, 12, 13 years ago? And we learned that, that it's not like God just came in with no warning and annihilated these people. They were given 400 years. You think they didn't know who he was? They knew who he was. When the Israelites start coming in, and you read some of the accounts in Joshua, they had heard of Yahweh. They had heard of his mighty feats for his people. They knew who he, they knew of him and who he was. Um, they, they had lots of time, and it wasn't yet complete, and it did. It was wicked then. It got more wicked. They, they were guilty of um, part of their worship involved um, Sex with prostitutes, that was part of their worship. Um, they were guilty of in, in their own, they sacrificed their own children. 
they were um, involved in incest, bestiality, all manner of, of perversion and wickedness and uh, of sin. And so it, it was a very, very wicked people that he is annihilating. He did not, you know, some people will say, well, this was ethnic cleansing. Ethnic cleansing, you wipe out that entire ethnicity. They were only to kill the people within the boundaries of the lands, not outside of the land, but within the land. And you can see from Joshua that there still were opportunities. Who, who's one of the main, who's a main figure in the lineage of Jesus than Joshua that was saved? Rahab. Rahab. So it wasn't like they didn't have an opportunity. They did have an opportunity. Still, there were some outs for them to turn and to believe in Yahweh and be saved. So it's not like it was just a blanket. You have to take all these things into consideration in doing this. I think the number one thing is I like what Teresa said. We're, we're all, if you, if you really understand your salvation, you know that every single one of us is worthy of death. The wages of sin is death. We are all sinners. Romans 3, y'all did Romans. There's none righteous, no, not one, nobody. It is only through the provision of God himself giving himself to save us from himself that we have any mercy, any hope, any chance of salvation and reconciliation with the Father. So we're all guilty. This is God's judgment on him. God is going to exercise judgment again one day. When Jesus comes again, this was just an early judgment. And we have examples that judgment on all the people in the days of Noah. Lots of people wiped out then because of their wickedness and their evilness. Yes, Catherine. Yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No? Yes, it is. Yes, Jim, I wondered if you wanted to add. In, in a broken, fallen world. Sure. So why mm -hmm. are you focused on the, the, the bad that we can do? Because we're 
think a lot of times they just struggle with it because they're going, well, because God did it, I want to come back to him? No. A, I want to appreciate him. B, I want you to understand that our posture towards it is out of uh, a reverent, initiated like a quiet anger. And as I look at the slaughter that is there, it's like God is trying to take, if you even think about it, it's like he's getting to that death. Agonize over that? Yes. So it's kind of like watching a movie where you think they're they're happy? Yeah. Because it's what's needed to be. So with the consequence, I'm gratefully pained by it. And the last thing, I'm doing a podcast that Ryan Keene and I did on this subject. So we were one of the following our podcast and said, you know, we need to just discuss these things. And one other piece Jericho, where Gideon and I, where a lot of what the discussion is today and what uh, Joshua are encountering in the city are not masterpieces like we see today, mm-hmm. but are actually military drones. Mm-hmm. And by the way, they exist, you don't need them. They, what they exist in them are military cannons, so you can't get rid of it completely. But God didn't say, go into Oklahoma City and murder everyone. Yeah. But what he may have said was, go to Vance Air Force Base, and don't leave anyone alive. So I don't think we get rid of it completely. We don't, but it appears that the size of these cities, they they didn't have that luxury. The cities and the walls, they weren't quite so military only, but that's why a prophet king may have lived in that area, and there may have been some of their families there. So to try to make it out and say, God only killed military people. No one, that has not can't do that either. Like it's not, you, I like that you described it. It's not evidence based. No. And it's, I find envy is like dread in terms of this destruction of property that may not be what actually happened. It may have been a little more luxury around militarily and militarily wise. So, so I'm not saying that we get rid of it, but Mm-mm. I think sometimes we get too caught in the hairy yes. and just go and start wrong. Right. And that's not the case here. Can I add one more thing? And I wish I could take credit for this and see if you agree with it, but I thought it was an excellent point that was pointed out that in some ways the killing of the children might have been a mercy on God's part because had they lived under those wicked parents, they would have adopted those wicked ways and then they would have been condemned to eternal judgment. So the taking of their life as a baby was a mercy. Which is not the intent. No. Yes. I, I thought I, I, that's the first time I'd heard that when I was researching this, and I thought, wow, now there's a new span. But there, I think there, I think I can, su- we can support that. But I looked at it, it's too similar to the example of Jesus. So it's that place where it's, if I were to say to you, hey, I think you better spend your life in prison, I'd almost say, no, you need to be killed. <laughs> you would say, you can't do that. Mm-hmm. But you would, you know what I mean? It really is that direction. You would say, that's something fundamentally wrong. But you're not God. Well, true. But I mean, but one of my questions becomes that if we need, there are natural assumptions. Like imagine you and my kids had kids with dads, mm-hmm. like they're not. Mm-hmm. And I want to be parents. I want the kind of relief to these kids. Mm-hmm. 
And that is what you have to come back to, is that he is God, he is righteous, he is holy, he is the creator, this is his creation, and he alone has the right to judge it how he wills. And I would even reemphasize we're all guilty of death. One thing, and then we are, we are beyond our time. Although he took a lot of it. <laughs> Whatever. You do, and that's a good point, and then we'll stop, is, see, there's that understanding of all the sweeping, the sweeping story. When the more you have a firm grip on the entire biblical story, I think the less you have struggling with this. The more you really know who God is in his fullness of all of his character traits, the less you have trouble with this. The more you understand how guilty we are, and we are only here by his mercy and the provision of his son, the less trouble you have with it. Okay, let's stop and take a break so Jim can talk some more. We like to have fun. Okay. Do you need $20? I want you to have it. No, I'm serious. I've heard, I've heard things are rough. Let me, let me help you. No, I'm, I'm serious, Candy. I'm I, I, exactly. I mean, if it's not working right, we're, I'm more than glad. If your husband can't provide, I'm here. Okay, um, I used to do. <laughs> I used to do that with college students. I would literally, they would just. Uh, I, I would. I forget how it would happen, but they would go, "Oh, look at this money." I'm like, "Oh, you really love this stuff?" Yeah, Jesus warns you'll probably go to hell for this, but go right ahead and take it. And uh, okay, anyway, uh, do I have your attention now? Okay, here's what here's what I want to do is I want to go back and I want to look at a particular word. And like I said, I think what can happen sometimes is. As I do this lesson, you'll say, wow, that was pretty, where did you get that from? How did you find? Not every word does this. This actually has a lot of significance to it, and I can't even get credit for this. Dr. Hall in graduate school was the one who said to me, hey, I want you to take a look at, where I was in Hebrew, he was my Old Testament Hebrew professor, he said, I want you to take a look at this word, and I did, and when I looked at the word, I thought, I would have blown by that word completely, like I had no idea that that word had any significance. Um, and now I look at it and I'm realizing, wow, like as I kind of was doing my study for this, I thought there are some, other, some, some places I don't even remember doing in graduate school, but the word that appears, not a million times, it's even when you try to look at the repetition, it's not like it's all the way throughout. It appears twice in the book of Judges. Um, it is the word. thorn. And I promise you, right, Nancy? I mean, it would be really easy for us to go, oh, no, it's just a thorn. So let's just go right by. I would have missed it. I really would have. I don't think I would have picked up, oh, that's a theologically significant word, or that's used twice in the entire book of Judges. So there's so much, no, no. But I want to just take us on a journey of thorns, if that's not interesting. And by the way, I would even tell you that sometimes the word thorn means thorn, right? Literally like a thorn that you would actually find. But what God does and what God reveals about himself is that although this is true, this is a thorn and it has a literal 
physical connection. It has a literal physical response. It also symbolizes something that is much deeper and much more profound. And so what I want to do is I want to kind of walk through this. So the first place we're going to go, does anybody know? Genesis 3. This is the one I missed in grad school. I had to go back and look at my notes. I didn't even bring up Genesis 3. If you have your Bibles, and like I said, we're going to be kind of walking through this particular journey, and what you will see is that in Genesis 3, and going back and thinking about the meta-narrative, okay, what you see in Genesis 3 is that we are in the fall segment of it. So when you look at the world and all that it has, and this is where I get into a little bit of trouble. Um, I'm a city kid. I mean, I grew up in a big city. So uh, agriculture and in many ways, like the world of the Bible is just weird to me. You know, I mean, I just thought the only reason why anybody would have a truck is if they had a cow. Because uh, why else would you have a truck if you don't have a cow, right? That's what you put your cows is in the back of your truck. So I never understood that, okay? So I don't come from a truck culture um, when I was actually, when I was actually um, one of the first times preaching in an agriculturally based church, I'm trying to go through the parable of the sower, and so I'm, I think I've told this story before, so I'm talking about, so you take your seed, you dump it in your combine, and then you're going through your land, and yeah, everybody did just what you're doing right now, they're all laughing at me. Now, for those of you that grew up in the city, you still don't know what I said wrong, but combines, I think they gather or collect or do something, they don't. They gather the wheat. So I had no idea. Combine just looked like something that you were spreading seeds with, okay? Uh, I, I had no idea. And, and, and literally what's interesting is, is that when you don't know, then you don't get it. Like when you don't know the agrarian kind of lifestyle, you miss a lot of what is actually happening in the Bible. You really do. You miss it completely. And so I'm grateful for a ministry in southern Ontario which was in a farming community. I'm grateful for an opportunity that I had um, when I was in grad school to be in a, in a farming community. It didn't just teach me, wow, there's some really neat people that live there, but I mean, I kind of had an opportunity to see the land, so to speak, okay? And it really kind of taught me a lot about God. So there is a spiritual connection to this. And so Genesis 3, the fall takes place. And one of the, one of the responses that we actually see from the fall is the production or the development of thorns. So one of the responses that comes in terms of God with the fall is thorns. So I want you to just think about that for a moment, that thorns are not what God intended. Thorns are not what God intended. Thorns are not God's original plan. Um, thorns actually are kind of like disease or illness, right? Now, again, I, I really don't understand what the big deal is about thorns, okay? Uh, I grew up in a manufactured yard community, or uh, manicured, I mean, manicured yard. Uh, so we were very, very careful. I mean, I remember my dad saying he didn't even want to see a dandelion in the, in the property. And so I'm thinking, okay, you just chop the top off, right? And it looks good. And my dad showed me how bad that idea is, you know? And so that's where I'm from. So I have no idea, like, what's the big deal about thorns, right? But they really get in the way. They really, really, really get in the way. Recently, when I was over in Africa, the thorns that they have over there aren't just annoying, they're dangerous. Like, they stop agriculture, thorns do, okay? 
And so I never knew that. I, I didn't realize just how complicated and how comp complex that actually is. But what we actually see in the Bible is that. So if you turn to verse 17 of Genesis chapter 3, so I'm going to back it up a little bit. In the fall curse, right? Now, mostly ladies in here, but there are some men. When I say the fall and the curse of God, most people think I will greatly increase your pains in childbirth, which I would even point out to you, to greatly increase means that probably pain may have been part of, some kind of birth pain may actually always been part of the human experience, okay? So it doesn't say that now you will have pain and you wouldn't have had it before. It says, I will greatly increase, okay? So I find that interesting. But notice how the thorn idea really kind of comes contrary to God's initial plan. He said to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I have commanded you, you shall not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Meaning that this land, which is supposed to be giving, okay? Um, by the way, marriage, which is supposed to be as God's design for Adam and Eve, which was supposed to be done in unison. It was supposed to be the coming together of one flesh, the reuniting of man and woman. And how many of you, when you hear marriage, you might think sweet, but how many of you just think hard, right? This, Andrea's not here. I'll raise my hand. Actually, I would have even if she was here because it's harder for her than it is for me. But when we think about marriage, like why is it that we just go, oh, that's just so hard? And you want to know why? Because of the fall. Because we're broken. Because now, we, now there's strife. Now there's my will and Andrea's will, and the two are now in conflict with one another. There's that, uh, that kind of that, 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 that hardness. Why? Because Andrea wants her way. I'll tell you, this is my marriage. Andrea wants her way, and I want it my way. That's our problem with our marriage. We're both selfish people, and we have to work through the complexities of that, okay? So God says, but to Adam, like this, this ground, which was supposed to be like you were, and the land's working with you, right? The land is working with you. This is exactly how the way it's supposed to be. You put in seed, and the land just naturally just bloom. It just blooms. That's the way that God intended it to be. But because of sin, and because of how sin fundamentally changes humans, and at some level the Bible talks about nature around us, now all of a sudden, instead of the land doing what it's supposed to do by God's design, give over to us, now it's going to be in pain. It's going to be hard. There's going to be a struggle. So he says, in pain you shall eat it all the days of your life. Verse 18, thorns and thistles. Another word for thistles that you will find Elsewhere, we're going to need this. They almost always go hand in hand. If I were to say to you, thorns and, what's the other word, if you can remember? Thorns and thistles, but thorns, give me another one with a B. Briars. So you'll see that in the English translation, okay? Thorns and thistles, thorns and briars. So there's, you'll, you'll see that kind of that connective idea, okay? Um, that is what the Bible is describing is now what Adam is going to experience with the land, which so thorns do what? Thorns fight against the natural productivity of the land. They grow in the land, but they're really not helpful. If anything, they thwart what could happen. Weeds do what to healthy things? Choke it out. They steal nutrients. They have no, they have no real value. They have no real purpose. What are, what are they? They're, uh, they're, they're stealers. They, they, they take away. They, they thwart what is really intended. So I want you to think about that. 
thorns fight against what the land should do naturally. And thorns are a sign to us that the world is broken. And so now, in, in, in woman, as, as if you were to continue on, and, uh, with, a, with a woman you will actually see this pain, what is natural, right? Which is to give birth and to have children. Now it's hard for this man who, especially in a more of an agrarian society, who is going to go out and is going to produce food. Now all of a sudden it's not going to be as easy. It's going to fight against you, right? So for those of you that are moms, go, yeah, why are my children fighting against me? And the husband comes in from the field and goes, listen, I know how you feel because I got 40 acres over there that are fighting against me too, okay? Quick aside, I wonder sometimes if this isn't, so I think heaven's going to be different. I, I, wonder, believe, I wonder sometimes if, if the curse of God is not just him being mad at us, but him teaching us dependency on him. Why did God give us pain? Why did God give us things that fight against the natural way? Is he mad? Well, at some level, the answer to that, by the way, is yes. Paul says that those of us who don't know Christ are object of his wrath. So to try to remove God's anger with sin and rebellion and wickedness against him would be foolish. It would be absolutely foolish. But what if in the midst of God's sovereign plan, that with the giving of thorns, with the giving of fighting against, because I'll tell you, Andrea and I thrive actually in adversity. When you ask me how we're doing, I've had a lot of questions about that with just a lot of what's been going on um, with our kids. Uh, and particularly right now with Max's health and my sister's health. Um, I love to tell them, actually, we're doing great. Well, but I know it must be hard. Oh, sure, it's hard. But actually, Andrea and I are like made for this. Like we kind of have one of these like, uh, tough, you know what I mean? We're just, we, we kind of go at it a lot, okay? Just to be honest with you, we kind of have, I, I think it's her personality. Because um, uh, if she would just oh, let me be me, it would work out for nobody. But in that whole process, what, I, what we have actually found is that in the midst of amazing adversity, like we learn to need each other. We learn, it causes me actually to come home more. Because when everything's fine, Hey, babe, I'm working late. Hey, babe, I'm taking off. Hey, babe, I'm going to, right? That's kind of how it happens. I, don't, I mean, I don't know if she needs me. I've always told her for the years where I was a real bad husband slash father, a lot of it was because she was so good at what she was doing. So I was just kind of gone. But when I, re I love her to death. And so when I recognize her in need, it kind of draws me towards it, right? Kind of brings me home, so to speak. So think about that context, like the fall is it just punishment? God sticking it to us? <laughs> Get it? Thorns? Is it God, is it, I've been rehearsing that one all day. Is it God sticking it to us or is it God saying, let me show you how much you need me. Let me draw you in. Through what? For those of you that have gone through pain, how many of you learn to depend on God? How many of you understand that in the midst of that pain, there is a, like an increased dependency. And so do you like it? Do you want it? The answer is no, yes, or yes, no, right? It's, it's, it's that. So when you think of fall, remember that looking at the meta narrative, that the intention of God in the midst of curse and fall is redemption and restoration. Don't lose sight of that, okay? That's how good and sovereign our God is. So you have this. I'm trying to think if there's anything else I want to add here. Let me, let me just say one more thing, and then you'll do it. So notice how it ends. 
So thorns and thistles shall bring forth to you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. By your sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground out of which you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you will return. So that's kind of where the curse ultimately comes from. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yep, yep, it really is. I mean, it has, uh, for those, there's a great book on God and pain, and the lesson I always think about is the story of a young boy in India who had leprosy, uh, Hansen's disease. Technically, it's not biblical leprosy. It's called Hansen's disease, what we usually think of as leprosy. And you lose all the feeling in your hand. And so he would uh, literally burn himself, he would cut himself, and have no ability to recognize I should change something. And so pain really does become an indicator. Don't walk on that. Don't twist that. You, you, you see those different issues. Okay, so let's jump forward. And by the way, I'm not going to be doing all the thorns and briars, but the ones that specifically help us understand judges. Um, next, I want you to turn to Numbers chapter 33. Numbers 33, verse 55. I think this is interesting. This, so this is in the numbers. This is Moses and the children of Israel wandering through the desert, God giving some descriptions of the way that actually things shall be. Um, and I'm going to back it up to verse 51. Uh, numbers 33, verse 51. So God is giving instructions to Moses, who's going to give instructions to Joshua, who's going to lead the people. And here is what it says. Speak to the people, so God's saying this, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when you pass over the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you and destroy all their figured stones and destroy all their metal images and demolish all of their high places. And you shall take possession of the land and settle in it, for I have given, you the, la- given the land to you to possess it. You shall inherit the land by lot according to your clans, To a large tribe you shall give a large inheritance, and to a small tribe you shall give a small inheritance. Whenever the lot falls to anyone, that shall be his. According to the tribes of your fathers, you shall inherit. So that's kind of the general instruction, okay? Now, look at verse 55. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then those of them who who you let remain shall be as barbs in your eyes and thorns in your sides. And they shall, be tr- they shall trouble you in the land where you dwell, and I will do to you as I thought to do to them. Okay? So think about this. As God is producing this judgment, he is producing a judgment against the Canaanites because of their wickedness and sin. Okay? So God says to the Israelites, I want you to go in. It is a promise right? You're going to get the land. It is all of that. But by the way, God didn't generically hate them for no reason. God hated them because they rejected him. And God didn't just hate them and want to punish them um, because they were doing bad things, but because they were worshiping the wrong gods. And that whole lifestyle led them to a life of what we might call ill repute. 
But let's not just get wrapped up in a lot of their moral brokenness and think that's what God hates. The cause of moral brokenness is actually a misidentified understanding of reality, which is that God is the creator of heaven and earth. That's where it all begins. If we were to worship God for who he is, we would naturally, I believe this, we would naturally, according to his word, we would naturally love him and respond to him and then realize that you are also made in God's image and so I would love and care for you and I wouldn't steal from you. Um, I would do all of these things for you. Why? Because we were both made in God's image and I know who God is and it would lead to peace. But when that doesn't exist, when we worship the gods of stone and silver, um, when we're trying to figure out a way how to make the word fertile so that I can exploit it and sell it and get more out of you and from you, then it's going to lead to everything. Me killing and stealing and raping and pillaging, all of that becomes a natural consequence of the belief system that they had. Okay, That's why if we don't have a right understanding of God, there really are no virtues. I was watching a television show. This is kind of an issue I've been talking a lot about lately. I was watching a television show, and it was, there was one Jewish guy and then there's a bunch of, uh, their, of his friends. And the friends are by no means Christian. Okay? Like the show is not a wonderful picture of Christian virtue. They're going through kind of some Christmas type festivities. And they're like in bars and doing really, really bad things. And by the end of the episode, this Jewish guy goes, that's the last time I hang out with you Christians on Christmas. And I, I kind of laughed and then kind of felt sick. Like, there's nothing Christian about, what was Christian about them? Oh, the Christmas tree. Yeah, that's not what it means to be Christian. But that's what he meant by it, right? Even his own Jewishness didn't matter to him. And so there is a brokenness that exists in all of that. And so God says, listen, this whole system is going to lead to this wrongness. Therefore, I'm going to punish them. I want you to be my agents of judging them. And if you don't, by the way, I don't have like a secret pact with you, going back, Nancy did Uh, she's been talking a lot this entire semester about the covenantal relationship. God has a covenant with Israel, but it's not like a you can do whatever you want covenant and I got your back. God is not as, um, can I just, let let me, I don't even think I'm overstating this, but it might seem strong to some of you. God is not as pathetic as many of our best friends or even the way that we would even treat our children where we're gonna be supportive no matter what, which I don't consider to be a good friend or a good parent or a good brother, or a good sister. I just, I consider that to be rather pathetic, to be honest with you. It really concerns me when we miss out on that. And so God doesn't say, hey, you know, you're my Jewish people, so literally I don't care who you worship. I just, I hate these Canaanites. No, I don't want you to worship these gods. And by the way, if you don't get rid of them, here's what I'm telling tell you right now, you're going to start worshiping their gods. And by the way, when you do that, you get what I was going to give them. You don't get a pass on this. And that is God's judgment. So that's why when I hear about this ethnic cleansing concept, I want to go, actually, God doesn't like anyone that rebels against him. There is no pass. There is no privilege when it comes to rebellion. If anything, much like my dad would always say, um, the judgment that that my dad would bring uh, down on me versus my friends when we were doing bad stuff, it was always going to be harder on me. Why? Because you're my son. I expect more from you. If anything, God's judgment begins with the household of faith because more should be expected of us, which is another biblical principle. And so Numbers 33.55 says, I want you to get rid of them, and if not, they will become as thorns or briars to you, which is kind of interesting. I need to go back to Genesis 3.18 and say, oh, so that which is fighting against what was originally intended. 
This is what idolatry is. This is what pagan worship is. This is what it means to not follow God, is that the things that exist in our society or in our hearts or in our lives actually undermine the productivity that God originally intended. Joshua chapter 23, verse 13. Joshua chapter 23, verse 13. Now here's what's interesting is, um, again, walking through this, here's what we find. God knows that they're going to fail them, but not all of them. There is, as Nancy and I taught a while back, there's always going to be a remnant, okay? So there are going to be those that are going to rebel against God, but there are also going to be those that are going to be, and God is going to work with them. There are going to be those who are going to be faithful, and God's going to work with them. So it's never an all-or-nothing composition. God always has for himself a remnant. But particularly, the nation as a whole is going to be rebellious and will then suffer the judgment of what that rebellion looks like. Um, we'll start in verse 10. Thir verse 13 is where I want to underline, but verse 10 is where we'll begin. One man of you puts to flight a thousand. Joshua 23. No, don't worry, Pat. Joshua chapter 23. We're going to look in verse 10. Okay? So by the way, we're, we're think of the book of Judges. And when I say to you, and one man shall put to flight a thousand, what are you thinking? Any, any judges come to mind? Samson? Gideon? Right? So... There really is this, hey, I, sure, I'll use you. I mean, do you realize that? Like, God doesn't need Gideon. God will use Gideon. Gideon says, man, I wish we had more men. God's like, yeah, you want to do this fleece thing? Tell you what, it'll be almost just you by the time we get down to it. I'll show you to kind of throw me a fleece, right? God is exposing Gideon's, I want to prove. You want to prove it? Fine. There's going to be just a small handful of you, and you're going to put an entire army to flight. And in that instance, you'll realize at the same time that I don't need you, and you better learn to depend on me, okay? So kind of think about that. So one man is going to put to flight a thousand, since it is the Lord, Yahweh, your God, who fights for you, just as he promised you. Verse 11, be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. Love being an action. Love being a, by the way, if you love me, Jesus says, you will what? If you love me, you will obey my commandments. That's, by, that's from Deuteronomy. If you love God, you will obey him. That is so not how we preach it. That is so not how we teach it. But it is the most biblical response to love is obedience. We just actually were up in Joplin um, yesterday, and we're doing, a, uh, we're doing a podcast on, well, we've got a couple of them coming up, but I, I sat down with some, uh, one of them was a former student of mine, and I'm listening to him going, you are brilliant. I mean, I have, it, was, it was incredible. Uh, you'll love the, the first one's on the hypostatic union, which is how God and Jesus, how God and man became one in Jesus. That's the fancy word for hypostatic union. And so we're meeting with him, and Michael tells the story of his little daughter Claire. They have hand signs um, so that when they're in public, if he wants her to do something, you know, he can just give a hand sign and she'll know to do it, and it won't be embarrassing. And so the word that he wanted to get across, and he's talking to Claire, and he says, "What word will we use for obey? I need you to obey me." But without saying that, what do I do? And Claire looked at him. She's probably three or four. And she said, I, I, I don't know. How, how about the word for love or whatever love is? And Michael goes, no, 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 no. That's the word for, that's the hand sign for love. That's a, that's a great idea, Claire. 
right? Isn't that, isn't that amazing? Claire, hey, why don't we use the word love to kind of imitate what it means to obey? This is why I don't like the concept about faith versus works. Because the Bible teaches very clearly, if you believe, if you love, then you will obey. And these will be a natural part of who we are. So, love the Lord your God who fights for you. Um, be very careful, therefore, to, this is verse 11, to love the Lord your God. For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that Yahweh, your God, will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap to you, a whip on your side and thorns in your eyes until you perish uh, from off this good ground that Yahweh, your God, has given to you. And then Joshua says, and by the way, I'm about to die. And so, you know, gives a great, my house is going to follow the Lord. Kind of chooses to stay whom he will serve, right? So when you look at how this is being described, God says to them, what I want you to do is I want you to love the Lord your God. I want you to kind of remain some kind of a distance. If not, what they will actually be is a thorn in your side, which is, by the way, not a generic ow. It literally becomes then also like a temptation, right? It's something that, you think about this, a temptation, that which then when, when, when agreed upon or when kind of falling into will actually lead us astray. And that's kind of the, the, the mentality that Joshua wants you to see. So these nations are not neutral in this. And when Israel decides we're not going to get rid of them for whatever reason, they had a number of reasons why they didn't want to get rid of them. And when they stopped doing it, what they kind of, what they were was they're the guy going, I really want to stop drinking. I really got to get this alcohol under, under I, I deal with this actually all the time. People who are struggling with uh, certain addictions, and I just ask like a quick question, a young guy or a young woman who's dealing with some alcohol problems, and I just say to them real quick, um, hey, by the way, curious to know, if I were to look in your fridge, would I find alcohol? Well, yeah. Okay, but, but you're saying you're really struggling with this and you're trying. I know, but what if I really need one? Okay, then, you know, maybe I could just give a tip, right? If you're really struggling with alcohol, why don't you not have any alcohol in your house? I'm not kidding. I get this. That would help a lot. I never even thought of that. And I'm not, I am not kidding. I was sitting, here's when I realized it was, it was so true. I'm sitting in a class on parenting that I was taking when Andrew and I were at the college and uh, our boys were really, really little. And so we're all sitting in a class and Dr. Buckland is teaching us about how to deal with kids. And any questions that you have? And a young lady raised her hand. My daughter just keeps cutting up her clothes. It drives me crazy. She just cuts them all up into pieces. And she cuts them and cuts them and cuts them. What should I do? And Peter, jokingly, Dr. Buckland, Peter jokingly goes, okay, now obviously after you take away the scissors. And then he began to talk. And I'm not kidding. The mom went, wait a second. Take away the scissors. And Peter, I'll never forget it. Peter stopped and said, like, you didn't take away the, well, no, because she'll cry and she'll get all upset. And and I'm sitting there going, where am I? How did you not know to take away the scissors, right? But I cannot tell you. For those of you that are laughing, you do know that, like, I know your kids. And um, children that have porn problems still have access to computers. And young people who really have a hard time with boundaries are still given a car 
So don't laugh at the lady with the scissors. We all, right, we all need to hear, okay, I'm the lady with the scissors sometimes. So wish I wasn't, wish I wasn't, but hi, I'm crazy lady with scissors. So notice what God is saying here is that, sure, they're going to be aggressive and they're going to be against you, but how are they going to be against you? How are thorns against us? Well, we learn from Genesis that they kind of undermine what God is doing, right? The productivity of the land. Um, And now we're finding out that they're like a temptation and they lead us astray, which is never what God actually intended, okay? Oh, yay. So here's what I want, or I want us to go next. Go to Judges chapter 2, verse 3. Judges chapter 2, verse 3, and someone... Why doesn't someone else read that to me? Yep, I would do. So who's talking there? God is. So isn't that kind of an interesting idea? That God says, hey, I want you to do this. And if not, they're going to do this. And now God says in Judges, notice how we've moved from Joshua saying, listen, we've got to do this. Now God enters the equation. What does he say? Yeah, I'm going to leave that for you. This is kind of an amazing thing. One of the things that God does in the Bible is he says yes to us in our sin and in our brokenness to teach us a lesson. Paul says that there are certain things that we just hand people over to Satan so that they might be taught not to blaspheme. Okay, so this is, for those of us that have like these really clear pictures of what God does and how he works, it's not just the issue that Nancy brought up this morning, which is how do these bad people get punished or even these apparently innocent people get punished. It even goes much further than that. God says, hey, I'm going to let them I'm going to let them live in there. You don't want to deal with it? Now I'm, I'm going to kind of pull back a little bit. You want to do it this way? We can do it this way. We can, we can work through this. God actually at times lets kids play with scissors. You know, you could hurt yourself with that, but I'm going to let you do it anyway. Under my sovereign guidance and under my sovereign protection in the book of Judges, God lets people wander away from him to teach him, teach them, to come back to him. That's hard. That's, that's a whole new level of, God, by the way, does it perfectly. You and I get really messed up in it. Judges chapter 8, verse 16. Someone read that text. Judges chapter 8, verse 16. Someone read it. Go ahead, Tara. Nice and loud. So you actually have like a real example of this, and this is how they would whip people. And you think about what's needed, right? And so you have a use of these thorns and briars as a means of discipline. Now, this isn't God doing it. This is somebody who's actually doing it. So I find it kind of interesting. And if you think about it, what would they actually have to do, torture, uh, to do some kind of a a physical corporal punishment? Um, Thorns and briars become definitely a method or a means of demonstrating it 
Um, kind of on the heels of that, there's a number of them that are found in Isaiah. There's one I want to look at, okay? So we're not looking at all the ones in Isaiah. But someone turn to Isaiah chapter 5, verse 6, and read that. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 6. So, by the way, all of this comes back to what Nancy was describing of the covenantal promises of God. God promised, think about how this draws, back us, to, draws us back to Genesis. God promised Israel that when you love me and when you obey me, what's going to happen? The land is going to give you food. And that's how you'll know that I'm with you. And when you don't obey me, what am I going to do? I'm going to stop the rain. That's what Elijah does, right? Well, God does it, but Elijah is the one that draws attention to that. I'm going to stop the rain, and what else am I going to do? I'm going to no longer take care of the land for you. And what you're going to have are thorns and thistles and briars, and you're going to have this, and I'm, not, I'm, I'm going to let you have them. So sometimes they're literal, but it's a sign of a covenant removal, although God doesn't remove his covenant, but right, it's the other side of that, which is the curse. Since you're not going to do this, notice how God yet once again, now the purpose of the, th of the thorns and the thistles, right, from God's perspective, is to teach us that something is broken, much like Teresa described with the, uh, with the pain. It's to teach us that something is broken. If there is a thorn or a briar in your life, the purpose is what? Not to punish, but to call you back to, to teach you a dependency on who God is. So I love this. God cannot, God does not tempt us, okay? What God does whenever those things come to us and what God actually does do, like the children of Israel, like with Jesus in the desert, what God does is he tests to approve. What the devil does is tempts to undo. So it can look like a very similar act, but God's intent is to never cause us or drive us to sin. No, he is faithful and just, and he will provide a way of escape, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Okay, so great text to be drawn to. But in the midst of this, so why does God do this? So th this is where I believe we could spend a whole bunch of time. This is where I believe like the work of the devil and the work of God kind of wrestle. Okay, go ahead. Got it. Undo. Yeah. That would be the difference between testing and tempting. Right? So that's how I believe the Holy Spirit can drive Jesus out into the wilderness right? To test him, to prove his identity. And then the devil encounters him. Why? To undo it. And God's going to win, right? Because Jesus is that one. Yeah, no, I, I wish it was mine. Um, I probably stole that from Klein Snodgrass. He's one of my favorite people in the world. Um, but that's, I mean, it's important for us to see that because, so then who's, who is doing this? By the way, this, we, we won't get into this, but one of the most interesting texts in the Bible is the two accounts of who has David count the men. And one of them is um, one of them is the Lord, and the other one is the devil. The Samuel text, no, the hold on, Samuel text, and the Chronicles text. One has the devil, and the other one has the Lord doing the same thing. And you got to figure out how that works. Yeah, sorry, it's in there. So I'm not trying to scare you. It's in there. So 
those. You may have never found it, which that'd be a whole other issue. I don't know how you didn't find it. But it is critical. It is critical that you look at those things, right? So who did it? And if you had asked me how that actually happens, much like with Job, I believe that God uses the devil for his purposes. That that gets complicated, right? So you won't hear that in certain churches that don't want to talk about complicated things. But we want to say, hey, it's in the Bible. We've got to wrestle with these kinds of things. So notice what God is doing here in this Isaiah text is I'm, I'm going to leave them. Why? To draw you to me, right? Um, I'll say this, and i got to go a little bit faster. Um, this is how my sister, Miranda's, grandma, Miranda's grandma, the lady with the, my, my niece with the, with the leg problem, right? Her birthday was two days ago. Uh, she turned 12 or 13. Um, it's how her grandmother can look at all the difficulties that have happened in Miranda's life. Uh, her parents got divorced. Dad left uh, for another woman. Then Miranda gets cancer. And my sister, who is Miranda's grandmother, looks at me and says, I think God is in charge of all of this. What? Deborah, there was a divorce and then cancer. And Deborah, would you want me to say God is helpless in this? You want me to say God just... It doesn't know what he's doing? What, what do you want me to say? And I just said, that's, I don't know, it's just hard to think about. And she said, I know. But I, I can just, she's a very spiritual woman, I can just see his hand in all of this. That is the Bible, to be honest with you. That is more Bible than you'll ever, that is me. And when you're dealing with the book of Judges, this is what you will actually find, that deep, rich complexity of God being sovereign, of always wanting good, but because we live in this broken world, that God uses things that will blow your mind to restore us to himself and to teach us dependency. Right? Welcome to the world. Welcome to a good God. Um, let, let me give you another one that's kind of interesting. Ezekiel chapter 2, verse 6. Who would like to read that? Ezekiel chapter 2, verse 6. This is one of my favorite ones. I love this. <laughs> well, listen, here's, here's what's interesting. The they are false prophets. The they are the people who are trying to undermine Ezekiel's ministry. They are, the, they are the prophet's enemies. Who are they? They are thorns and briars. And God says, and I don't want you to be dismayed by them. Do not be unsettled by them. There are going to be thorns and briars, things that are undoing what you're trying to do, much like thorns in the ground. They are undoing productivity, and what I need you to do is pay no attention to them. I love that. So in the prophet's life, there's pain, there's adversity. Uh, I love to be reminded that it's not, I, I see a young person come to Christ, and I don't just see onward and upward. And I'm not because I'm a negative person. I just have been around long enough. I see a wedding, and I just don't see happiness forever. I see this residual happiness. Um, one of the lessons that God has taught me is that when you ask me how I'm doing, my new response is, well, I'm thinking, that's bad, that's bad, that's good, that's bad, that's really bad, that's good, that's good, and that's God. I'm good. That's my life. And God kind of comes in and is the undercurrent of all of it, but I, I need to be honest. I need some time to think as I line all of these things up. How are you doing? I'm good. I really am. I'm good. 
but I had to go through a lot to get there, right? So the prophet, do not be undone by this. Um, I, I think this was Elijah's problem. Elijah's problem is, so I do what you say, and then it seems like I don't get anywhere. And God's like, I know. You're going to die, and Israel's going to be a mess. Get over it, Elijah. You're not in charge of this. I am. And that's the, one, of the, one of the problems with being a parent, one of the problems with being a, uh, a, a minister, what's one of the problems with being a youth sponsor is that you get glimpses of what's going on, and there's ups and downs and ups and downs and ups and downs. And I don't know where you're going to go to get away from this. This is life. But for those of you that are prophets, when there are thorns that are undoing what you are trying to do in someone else's life, or there are things being undone in your marriage, or things being undone in your life, I don't just say like it or lump it. I mean, it's don't be afraid of them. Don't misunderstand them. Put them in their rightful place. They all stand under the sovereignty and the goodness of God. And they are meant to undo you, but they will not undo you because God is the one who is victorious through all of this. Um, Ezekiel 28, 24. Somebody who's there needs to read that. I'm all, I, I swear to you, I'm almost done. Give me like two minutes. Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 24. I love this. This is a great one. You need these two Ezekiel ones to go side by. Actually, Isaiah and then these two Ezekiel ones to go boom, boom, boom. God's going to leave them to teach you. Um, don't be dismayed by them. And then Ezekiel 28, verse 24 says what? <laughs> so there is a redemptive peace. There is a, hey, and by the way, it's not just thorns till you're dead. Although, yes, it is thorns till you're dead. But the long-term story, the redemptive piece, is that it's not thorns forever. That God will put an end to all of these things. Okay, And you need to trust him in that. So God is ultimately redemptive over the curse. Now, you, you can look here in the chapters. Matthew 13, Luke 8, and Mark 4 is the story of the sowers. Matthew 13, Luke 8, Mark 4. You should know that because it's a very famous parable. It's not found in John, by the way. Matthew 13, Luke 8, Mark 4 is the story of the sower. And what undoes the word that is spoken? One of the many things that undoes it. What is it? Thorn. And by the way, do you, do you know what the thorns are described as? The what? The cares of this world. You know what Luke describes them as? He takes it one step further. Wealth. So, hey, welcome to America. One of the things that is warned about is actually riches. Because of the cares of this world, Luke says in Luke 8, and the deceitfulness of wealth. So it's not just wealth. It's the deceitfulness of wealth. In what sense? Wealth deceives all of us by teaching us that we don't need God. We got it. That's the, that's the problem with wealth, okay? That's the problem. So wealth in and of itself is not the bad guy. It is in our own hearts where we're going, I would just rather trust my 401k. I would rather trust my, I would rather trust. It's that. And acts like a thorn, undermining what God is actually doing. So Jesus uses this analogy in terms of thorns. My last statement I want to give to you is actually 2 Corinthians 12.7. It's not used, by the way, very much in the book, uh, in the books of the New Testament. But 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, you all know this one. The Apostle Paul is crying out to God, saying, I want you to take away what? This thorn. Take away this thorn from me. 
And all these scholars love to talk about what the thorn is. I'll tell you this. Let's go back and figure out what we've already learned. Thorns are people who are trying to undermine what's going on. Thorns are those who are trying to undo what God is doing. Thorns are those things that rob from the productivity. You take all of that in a nutshell, and you realize Paul's greatest struggle, I've heard people say that the thorn in his flesh was most likely his eyesight. I, for a man who says, I would gouge out my eyes and give them to you, I don't think he's overwhelmed about the sadness of an eye problem. I really believe that the thorn in Paul's flesh are those Judaizers within the church who are trying to undermine the work that he is doing, and he is begging God, will you take away those who are trying to undo what I am doing? That's how thorn fits in beautifully into the, uh, the interweaving. Paul looks at thorn much like Ezekiel and Isaiah, right? Thinking back in terms of his understanding. And what is he saying? God, I don't want those who are fighting against me to win. And God's answer to him is what? Like, my grace is sufficient for you. Paul is very much like the prophet Elijah. I don't want everything that I'm doing to kind of unravel in front of me. I mean, I, I think about this. The day when I, I look back on my ministry at Sunnybrook Christian Church, because I'm getting so old. I'm 47. Um, I've got a sister. Wayne Gretzky, by the way, turned 55 today. That's awesome. And it's also my sister's birthday, but that's not as big a deal. Wayne Gretzky turned 55 today, so that's awesome. Um, and what I want you to think about is, is that I, when I look back on my life and I just, maybe I begin to see whether it's my family, all those things, whether it's my ministry or my church, and it just seems to be getting away from me. Like, what am I going to do? And in those moments, what I'm going to realize is that in this world, there will be thorns. There will be those that will be trying to undo what God is happening. And that doesn't undo everything that God has done through me or in spite of me or how that works. But all of these things, even in my own life, these thorns that come are designed by God to teach me to be increasingly dependent upon Him and not just upon life circumstances. So I'm not asking you to embrace thorns because truly that would be like an alcoholic having beer in his fridge. But I do not want you to be dismayed by them because that is not their power or their ability because God will demonstrate His control and sovereign will over them and there will be a day where there will be no thorns. There will be nothing that will undo this. But in the meantime, we need to recognize that God in his goodness gives us strength and perspective so that we can see his hand in the midst of all those situations. I will give you a benediction in closing. Uh, may the God of fertile ground and may the God of difficult thorns be the one to use each of those in this broken world to remind you of himself. His love and his provision and also in this broken world, his divine sovereign care. And may the thorns in your life, I'm not going to say turn to roses because that would be creepy, but may the thorns in your life painfully but truthfully remind you how much he loves you and cares for you and desires to refine you. For his son wore a crown of for us. Love you guys.